On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Austin Russell of Russell Makes in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone for about an hour and I talk to somebody in the bicycle frame building world. And usually that is actually a frame builder, but not always. And this week, my guest, Austin Russell, is not exactly a frame builder. So I'll explain that. But, um, you know, usually we, we, we talk about our guest's story and uh, try and tell that story. And we talk about technique and uh, some uh, maybe philosophical perspective about the way that we go about this work. And so my friend Austin, good friend of mine, he took a, the same frame building class that I took with Doug Faddock. He took it back in 2011. I took it in 2010. And I've known him most of the time since then. I didn't know him when he took the class, but since then we've kept in touch. Uh, so, you know, he's been into bicycles for a long time and he's been into fabrication. He's done a lot of different projects. He never built another bike after the class, uh, but he did make the first one. And uh, he's worked at Velocity USA, the uh, bicycle wheel and rim manufacturer. And so he worked there for like five years as a wheel builder and he just built thousands of wheel sets lacing them up and tensioning and truing them uh he's done that just to death and then he also uh more recently the last about you don't know three five years something like that he's uh run the actual manufacturing of the facility which is pretty cool you know for a younger person you know he's my age for someone like us to be working somewhere and to have sort of an opportunity to move into a more interesting and challenging position like that I think uh, not everybody gets that, but he's done that and he's done a really good job of it too. So, um, you know, when they wanted to bring the manufacturing of the rims from Florida to Michigan, he was given the opportunity to sort of take that on. He rolls all of the rims and he has his hands on most of the, you know, the anodizing line and the machining and the the hole drilling for the spokes and, and all these different things. And so we talk about that and we talk about, uh, you know, bike frame building and some different projects that he's had over the years. Uh, I think he's a really talented and interesting person. And, you know, he's creative too, like with his, his home fabrication shop over the years. He's made a lot of uh, clever and creative things. One of the things we talk about in this episode, in this interview, is his uh, skim bike, uh, which is just a ton of fun. But basically, it's just a bicycle that also has skis on it so that you can ride it off of a boat launch (laughs) into the water. Um, It's totally a goofy competition that Austin and some of his friends are uh, daring enough to actually do. So that was a really uh, fun part of the interview. But anyhow, um, also a couple months ago when I upgraded my CNC milling machine, uh, he was the person who bought my older one, which is still incredibly capable. And so he hadn't really done CNC machining. And now he has this uh, very capable machine and I'm excited to see what he is doing with it. And I imagine he will continue to do really exciting and interesting things. And so uh, because he's sort of in the world of, you know, the bike world and sort of in the frame building world. And because I think um, he's just really talented and uh, interesting guy, I wanted to get him on the show. So where we cut into the interview here. Uh, I had asked him about the frame building class that he took in 2011. And I think I asked him, you know, like, was the first bike that you built a, a fixie? And, and he's kind of telling us about that. Yep. Yep, exactly. Uh, you know, that's what's popular <laughs> at the time. So I, I wanted a fixie. It was a cool, it was a super fun bike. Yeah. And you still have that? Yeah, I still have it. Yeah. I robbed some parts off it, so it's not rideable right now. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still have it that's a cool bike and so that was you built a frame and a fork and it was lugged and then you also did did you guys do painting in that class yeah yeah i did the whole did you do the whole three-week class i did the whole like three-week class where where you got to paint and everything at the end yeah mine was just two weeks it was um and by the time the course was over, the bike wasn't totally finished. Like it was, yeah. they had to do a little bit of the rear end work for you with construction. And then there was a fair amount of finish work that was left too. Like I didn't have time to, to ream and face and chase all the different, you know, mounting interfaces for seat posts and head tube and stuff. Yeah. And then it wasn't painted either. Uh, Cause yeah, it was just two weeks, but yeah. So, so you did that class. You were certainly interested in bikes and frame building and stuff. 
but you um, maybe didn't have any specific plans for what you were going to do with that information. Right. Was that going into it? Did you have like any interest or desire in like doing it a whole bunch more or did you see the class as like a fun experience in and of itself? Uh, I did want to build frames. I thought, you know, I was really into BMX at the time and I was like, and that's like the, from this perspective, it's like the worst thing to be into. Cause I was like, man, I want to learn how to, how to build uh, uh bike frames. And, you know, I ride BMX. So I'm going to start building BMX frames. Well, you can buy an American made <laughs> really well made BMX frame for like, like $350 or $400. Yeah. So yeah. to think about like just starting out learning how to build frames, man, I'm going to just jump straight into the BMX market was obviously, you know, not actually going to happen. And I never really bought all the, you know, frame building specific tools or anything. I always kind of wanted to do it, but I still haven't built another frame. I did get into wheel building and, you know, at the bike shop, nobody, there really knew how to build wheels. I mean, they did, but I kind of learned from the mechanic that was before me and he didn't even work there anymore. It's just like, whenever he came in, I would like ask him questions and he was pretty much just like, well, you know, just look at a built wheel and, and copy it. <laughs> and so that's like all I knew about wheel building. And, you know, I built probably, I don't know, less than 10 wheels, um, but enough to kind of, kind of know what was going on, I guess that's when I started looking around for another job in the bike industry and I wanted to work, you know, and I didn't want to work in the retail side anymore. So I guess I was moving toward manufacturing. And so that's when I got my job at Velocity. So I started there as a, as a wheel builder. That's kind of how I got my foot in the door. And, uh, on the side kind of also did all their product photography. And I did a bunch of, like videos for a while we were putting out videos for like a couple of years and i was doing all yeah, those Those are sharp yeah those are really yeah. sharp too yeah. you guys had uh i know you said the one that you did where you showed how to uh like install the tubeless tire was yeah. actually weird weirdly popular yeah was that a vimeo channel or a youtube channel or both it's on both um we kind of yeah. started out on vimeo uh, and that was my decision i just kind of liked vimeo more but as the years went on it became I don't know, Vimeo is cool, but I mean, YouTube. It just doesn't have the traffic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the whole point when you're making product video stuff. So. Yeah. And then you did, I remember one of the videos you guys did was like, uh, you're, you're at the truing stand and you start plucking the spokes and it's like a, a holiday time video. that's like Carol of the bells or something, <laughs> but it was on the spokes. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, and that, did you actually, that's like the most popular video we ever did, but you're, I know yeah. you're asking me, did I actually play it? Well, yeah, I mean, like, you could tune the spokes, or yeah. you could sample spokes, and then you could, you know, have, like, a MIDI sequencer that... Yeah. But you actually were able to play it on there? I, I wasn't actually able to play it. Actually, oh, okay. the, um, the... What I did do, we have a load cell at Velocity that we can... That's made to hold a spoke. So what it's mm -hmm. for is you basically, you can put it's connected to a digital out, you know, readout scale and you can put however much uh, tension on it and then you can test your tensiometer on it. So you can see like when, when the spoke is at 120 kgf exactly, what does my tensiometer wow. read? And so it's a really nice way to calibrate your tensiometer in house. Um, wow. Anyways, that's what we used it for. <laughs> but what I used it for was to, uh, I used a guitar tuner and I put a spoke in it and I would pluck, <laughs> I would pluck the spoke until it hit a note that I needed and I would re record that pluck. And then I used, wow. I did that for every note that I needed and I used each plucking sound and I actually just laid them out manually in like a video editing software. So wow. it took a while, but that's how I, that's how I did it. That's the secret. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah I, I didn't know which way you had done it. I've seen that video a handful of times and I used to do more audio and, and music projects on the computer. And so I was yeah. aware that you could do it a number of different ways, but uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am not, not going to give you a hard time for, for not actually playing. <laughs> well, you know, the, the spoke tension range that you would need, that wheel wouldn't have been anywhere near straight. And I don't know that you can yeah. actually, that you could actually build a wheel that would actually play like that. But maybe, maybe, 
you know, for like a really simple <laughs> song or something. Yeah, yeah, that was really cool. Yeah. Um, so, so you get this job at Velocity. You're kind of itching for for a different taste of the bike world, and you're working there, and you're you're building wheels, and you built a lot of wheels. Yeah, um, I mean, I built wheels there pretty much. I mean, I built wheels there full time, you know, except for the rare occasion when I was working on a photo project or whatever. I was building wheels, and I did that for almost five years. That's so, crazy. I forget. I had a count because every time we build a wheel, we sign off on it. I have a wheel set that you built for me, and there was like an initial that you put on the sticker with the, yeah, with your pen, and yep. so you're saying, yeah. Yep. So we had to do that for every wheel we built. So that was like an easy way to keep track of how many you built. And I built, I think, oh, I forget if it was either over 4,000 or over 6,000. It's somewhere in that somewhere in that range anyways. Call it 5,000 yeah, wheels is roughly... That's a lot, man. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever get like uh, like carpal tunnel wrist pain, that sort of thing from, yeah. from like using your hands so much? Yeah, a little bit. Towards the end, especially. And that's, you know, kind of one of the things that drove me to start looking for new opportunities, uh, whether it was within velocity or not. And the, the opportunity to kind of head up the factory came at perfect timing. For me, anyway. So for folks who don't know as well, you know, Velocity USA is situated in Grand Rapids, Michigan. In, in years past, the rim production was done in Australia, and it was done in Florida for a short period of time. But now the wheel building and the rim manufacturing are all done in the same building, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so while you were building wheels in the same facility, there was there was the rim production going on. Right, exactly. Um, and like you say, that was going on in Florida. And then... Uh, circumstances you know in the company whatever they wanted to they wanted to move the factory up to michigan so that everything would be in the same building and at the same time the guy who started the company in australia um like i don't know 33 years ago or something like that you know he's he's been doing it a long time and he doesn't want to do it for the rest of his life so he was looking for somebody to basically take over his job of running the factory and making sure you know, that the factory keeps running, everything that's entailed with that. And so I was there uh, and ready to ready to take on that position. So I, I accepted that offer, and that's what I've been doing ever since at Velocity. Yeah, that's it's really cool. Uh, for folks who haven't seen, there's a YouTube video I did a little over a year ago. I was in Michigan, and you gave us a tour for 20 minutes or something. Uh, you know, we went around and you showed all the different parts of the process: the the anodizing line, the rim rolling, the the machine sidewall machine for if you use rim brakes. You know, if you're yeah. still living in the in the <laughs> 1980s or whatever. Um, and the uh, the spoke drilling machine is really cool and and the the stacks of rims from f floor to like seven feet tall or whatever yeah. it's just uh it's a it's a really interesting facility to see so it's cool to get uh it, for anyone who hasn't seen that uh, i would recommend watching that video on my youtube channel uh you can just search you know velocity factory tour but yeah so anyway so you, so you get this opportunity to start working there and you do uh what was that learning curve like i mean now you're very familiar with the ins and outs of the automated anodizing line and rim rolling you said you've you've rolled just about every uh rim or every yeah every rim that has uh that has come out of the grand rapids uh facility i've rolled <laughs> that's crazy yeah yeah. So like, uh, you guys work with a, an, an aluminum extruder out of Arizona or something, and they provide you the lengths of extrusion that have the profile of the rim, but it's a straight section and you guys have to roll it with a, with a rim roller. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that rolling process is something that you have done for every rim. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, can't take a vacation like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's tough. You know, every time I take a vacation, I have to, you know, roll a bunch of rims beforehand so that they have work to do while I'm gone. And then when I come back, usually they're like, you know, finishing up the last five rims that I rolled or whatever. And so I have to like immediately jump back on the roller and roll as many rims as I possibly can for a few days. So that's a little tough when <laughs> when vacation comes, but... Uh, the reason, I mean, it's not a great reason to have only one person that can run a certain machine, but that 
machine in particular, you can make a ton of scrap on that machine and not even know it if you're not really paying attention. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to, it's hard to teach that. And you're talking about the learning curve. I mean, you know, I kind of learned that on my own. I mean, the, the bosses there who had, who had run the, all that machinery for, you know, for as long as it's been around, he taught me how to use it. And he, he gave me a pretty good head start as far as, you know, things that, things that you need to know for adjustments and maintenance and all that. And he, he did that for me for the, throughout the whole factory. But, you know, I'm a pretty detail oriented person. So it, <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of de- details left out, but that's the kind of thing that you can't really teach. You know, I absorbed everything that I could from him mm-hmm. and he just, you know, he, he taught me everything he could and, and the rest I kind of had to learn the hard way. And it's been, it's yeah. been a steep learning curve, but yeah, I do finally kind of feel like I'm in control of most of it. And I don't even want to say that because now <laughs> something's going <laughs> to, something's going to break, but, uh, uh-huh. yeah, it's, it's been fun, man. It's been super fun learning, having the opportunity to, to opportunity to learn all that machinery and, and be, actually be able to keep it going. And that's been pretty cool. Yeah, I when I see your Instagram stories where you're cleaning out the anodizing line, uh, that yeah. I don't envy. But uh, a lot of the rest of it seems very cool, actually, because there's, <laughs> I you know I love problem solving and I love understanding things and and developing processes that are better and you know just improving on on the ways that things are done. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for that kind of stuff where you're at. I know um, we'll get into it a little bit later, but you know you're you're working on building some tooling for the spoke drilling machine and you know that sort of like how do we make this suck a little bit less uh that sort of stuff is pretty cool yeah for sure that's that's kind of the biggest stuff that we've been working on recently is um you know trying to figure out how to streamline our our whole process much better you know we, we used to do you know minimum minimum batches of like 200 rims but if you and and the reason for that is to make sure we we are efficient enough in our production to still be able to make money. But the problem with that is it's, the reason we did that is because the machines took so long to set up between, you know, between models. Say you got to go from like a 20-inch cliffhanger to a 700C aileron or something like that to change the drill over and the roller yeah. and, you know, every other machine to go, you know, between those two models. It's just a ton yeah. of work. And so you, you want to do that as least as you possibly can uh, mm-hmm. so that most of the time you're running, you're actually making rims. And that's good and that's efficient for manufacturing. However, if some guy orders his 20-inch cliffhanger and we just ran out and we're not scheduled to be drilling those until, you know, <laughs> two months from now, you know, that guy's probably not going to buy a 20-inch cliffhanger. He's probably going to go find some other 20-inch rim he can buy that will ship immediately and (laughs) so uh what we've been doing mostly is is trying to shorten the setup times of the machines and get it so that we can only do like right now we're down to 50 rim batches which is obviously a a massive improvement you know we can justify setting up our machines for a for a run of 50 and that means that we can much more quickly you know, service the customer who's ordering something that we might not have in stock right now. Chances are we're going to be making it, you know, within a week. Yeah. So that's huge. Yeah. The, um, you know, the further I get into sort of like CNC and manufacturing world and stuff, one of the big, um, I don't know, buzzwords or, or concepts people talk a lot, a lot about is, you know, the Toyota method, just in time sort of production yeah. or uh, lean manufacturing. And, there's all different ways you can apply that. And I think some people get annoyed with that because it feels like uh, there's some boss man up in the bureaucracy of a big corporation is trying to tell them how to run their shop. And uh, I think that's probably an accurate description in some, some company environments, but anyway, uh, I think there's also a lot of benefits to thinking about that. The, The big thing being that like, if you have, Uh, a bunch of, if, if the only way to be efficient is to do a huge batch, then you need to tie a bunch of time and a bunch of money into producing stuff. 
and then it just sits around because it's like half finished and you can't sell any of it until it's all done. And once it's all done, you have a huge inventory and a lot of money and time tied up in that inventory and your break even point on that is, is pretty far out. And so you might not be able to make payroll for your employees or whatever. And meanwhile, you have thousands of dollars tied up in inventory. It costs money to store stuff, all these things. So like, it makes sense that like, if there's a way to change your process towards smaller batches without losing efficiency, that's great. And I remember in the bike frame building sort of example, Carl Strong talking about that um, in interviews I had read years ago where he was saying that, you know, as he built his his frame building shop bigger through the 90s, he realized that actually he was managing a lot more risk and things were sort of boom and bust and he would do contract manufacturing and maybe somebody wouldn't pay on time or something. And then uh, he would be left sort of you know, almost, he'd be like on the edge, you know, he wouldn't be very comfortable, uh, because he, (laughs) he was kind of spread out there. And so, uh, you know, scaling it back into a smaller operation really worked better for him. And now it's pretty much just, you know, he makes the bikes the last 10 years or however long it's been, it's just a a simpler operation. And so, you know, something like velocity is never going to work at a tiny scale, but yeah, like those process improvements that you can make where it makes sense to do a small batch and it's still efficient. That's awesome. I do a lot of that in my shop lately. I'm trying to make it so that I can set up a job really easily so, so that it's easy to do a small batch and still be efficient. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And we're, you know, we're studying the same stuff as velocity and, and that's, yeah, that's the reason for, for all that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one of the big things that we should definitely talk about is the CNC machine. So, Two years ago, uh, I was fed up with my job and I bought a CNC machine from 1996. It's a Bridgeport Torque Cut 22. It's a BT40 6,500-pound CNC milling machine, three-axis mill with a tool changer. Really cool machine. I had that for about a year and a half, and it was giving me some trouble, and I wanted to uh, have maybe a more productive, newer machine that was more reliable with some newer features and some other things. And so uh, I set out to buy a new machine, and uh, I set out to pawn off my old machine to one of my friends or something, and I convince you (laughs) uh, to take it off my hands. And so in this last fall here, a couple months ago, uh, I sold that machine to you for a pretty smoking deal, I think. Yeah. And you moved it out to Michigan, and uh, you didn't have room for it at your house in your like personal garage. Right. And uh, you worked out a deal with the owners of Velocity where it would it would live at Velocity rent free, and you would use it for these sorts of uh, shop purposes and Velocity related things. But that you would own it and you'd be able to use it after hours for your own projects as well. Is that sort of this, the the yeah. arrangement that you have? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. the deal. Yeah. And so you had never done CNC before and you hadn't done a whole lot with CAD, but I've seen the stuff that you've been doing with manual machining and designing stuff the last couple of years. And I knew you'd take to it really quickly and you have, and you've been making some really cool stuff with it. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, tell me about your side of that. Like, you know, you saw it and you wanted to take it and we, we did it. Like, what has it been like for you since you got it? And what are some of the things that you have made and some of the things that you uh, want to do with that machine? Yeah. <laughs> thank you, man. And thank you for, uh, giving me that deal. Cause honestly, I'm a cheap, I'm a cheap bastard sometimes. And I probably wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have gotten into CNC for another, you know, I don't even know, five years, maybe if you hadn't, <laughs> if you hadn't cut me that yeah. deal and you totally, I mean, the, the capability that it unleashes is like absolutely yeah. insane. So yeah, totally. The thing I'll mind. say about just for public record here the machine broke three or four times in the time that I owned it and I would fix it. And I paid a service guy to come out one time, like 400 bucks. And he was there for like half an hour, you know, (laughs) So you have an old machine and it runs and it's great. And then when it stops running, it's a huge nightmare. It's a huge headache for production. And, um, and I know that you're handy and you like fixing stuff and you're probably better at fixing stuff than I am. And so uh, I got tired of fixing it. And what I had was a limited window of time before I needed the shop space. I didn't want to let it sit outside. I, uh, when you have something that's kind of broken and you don't feel like fixing it before you sell it, it's not worth much because you can't prove that it's just going to be a quick fix. Like who knows how much work is involved. And so it really wasn't worth that much on the general market and I had to get rid of it quickly. So like being able to get it to you, like I did want to give you a deal, but I also felt like it wasn't really worth that much to anyone else at that point. Yeah, totally. I totally get that. Anyway. Um, 
ironically, it was a quick fix. <laughs> 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 the, uh, it was just like the little the little proximity sensors uh, for the for the carousel where it goes back back and forth. And I just yeah. had to like clean them. I just all I did was I like cleaned them and I adjusted them a little bit closer to like the thing that they're mm-hmm. supposed to be in proximity with. So it it yeah, has done that, that fault. It has done that mm-hmm. fault like one time since then, but but that's it. Yeah. So I just I want to believe that that was a fluke and it's never going to do it again. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if it does, you know, that's just the joys of owning an old machine, but what you can do yeah. with it. Yeah. Yeah, what you can do with it is is phenomenal, especially I mean, you know, you've you've talked about this before, but with uh, you know, with modern like CAD CAM software being able to feed code to an old cheap machine, I mean, that's like as it's almost too easy. I want to say that, but it's also yeah. it was, that was a steep learning curve too. Is learning, I mean, what I'm on, what I'm using is Fusion 360, and I had never used it before, and so then there I was like okay, I've got the CNC machine, but I can't do anything with it until I learned Fusion 360. So it was like everything I could do to to learn that program as quickly as I could just so that I could start using this new toy that I got. And man, that that was harder. It was harder. I mean, I'm not even that good at that program yet, but it's been harder to learn that program than it was to learn how to run the machine by far. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. I always say like 90% of CNC machining happens at the computer. Totally. You know, you, like if you, if you just got a CNC machine and then you started machining and you had never really machined much, then you would have a lot more struggles at the machine because work holding is kind of complicated and, you know, cutting tools, cutting geometry, you got to understand rigidity. You got to get coolant access. You got a chip evacuation, yada, 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 yeah, yada, yada. There's yeah. a lot of stuff. But if you have the cursory background in that, I think um, most of the most of the machining really happens at the computer. And then the first time you run the program, you just got to really watch it slow and have your, your hands on the, the feed hold button. Yeah, yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, so what I've made on it so far uh, is kind of random little tools or, you know, I've made a few little random pieces for velocity. So I've, you know, they've they've gotten some advantage out of it as well so far and i'm in the process of making a a drill fixture uh which will be a velocity project and that's going to be a pretty big project actually Uh, but i've started doing some machining of of those parts so that's been kind of fun Um, but also kind of the biggest thing or the thing that i am the most excited about is starting to make my own products just like what you did (laughs) with the machine um this machine is just going to hop around from like startup to startup. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's that. That's like, uh, I didn't, I don't know if I gave you that stipulation, but if you ever outgrow it, you got to pass it on to somebody cool who yeah, can do exactly. something cool with it yeah. for a sweet deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyways, uh, what I made is, is the, you know, about this obviously, but what I made is a, a wheel, a bike wheel lacing tool called a nipple tray and it comes with a nipple poker and, it's easy. You just like dump some nipples on it and you pick up the nipples with, with the poker and you can use that to then thread the nipple onto the spoke, which is hard to do in a double wall rim. You know, the spoke is down inside the rim and you're trying to get this thing threaded on top of it. Um, so it's nice to have something that you can kind of manipulate yeah. it with. But back um, in the day when you guys had those, those B 43, those yeah. like massive, yeah. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know velocity, you know, they're known for like the deep V rim back in like the, you know, 2006 fixie yeah. craze or whatever. But, yeah. but then they made for bike polo enthusiasts or whatever, they made an even taller sidewall rim that was, <laughs> was it 43 millimeters tall? Yeah. Yep. That's right. I don't know how you'd even roll that extrusion without it just going all wavy, but so, well, <laughs> apparently you can. That, well, that's funny because apparently when they, when they first started trying to make that rim and this is before my time there this is just a story that i've heard but um they you know they made it a double wall rim at first and then they and then they rolled it but it just kept buckling in the middle of course it wouldn't like it wouldn't hold its shape and uh so they ended up adding it's either it's one or two more walls so it's like i think it's a triple wall rim there's like another brace that goes across the middle and it's just there to make the to make it rollable to make it so the middle doesn't just cave in 
that had to have been a really hard rim to roll. Yeah. Those are heavy. I remember, I don't know why, I guess I used to be more of like a gram counter Mm -hmm. and also sort of a velocity fanboy. And I remember that like the, uh, what was it? Like the A23 rim in 700C was like 415 grams or I want to say it was somewhere in there. And I think the B43 was like 750 or or 800. It was a lot. It was quite a bit heavier. It wasn't just a little bit. It was like. And by the time you get, you know, all the spokes in the wheel and stuff, and that's like the, the rotational mass, of course, anyone who cares about bikes would know this, obviously, but yeah, like yeah. The, all the mass out toward the end that you feel it. Oh um, yeah. You feel it big time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. As, especially when you're, you know, it's one thing for like a cheap bike, of course, it's going to have heavy wheels, but when you spend hundreds of dollars on your wheel set and you lace it up and then to have that sluggish of a wheel set, that's, <laughs> yeah, I guess I yeah, it was like mar- marketed at bike polo, I think, especially. Yeah, I think so too. Bike pole and just anybody that wanted that like crazy deep section rim just, <laughs> just for the way that it looked, you know, I mean, that's who bought it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I used to play bike pole a little bit here when we had, it's, it's hard to get enough people in this small, relatively small town together yeah. to play bike polo. I love bike polo, but anyway, yeah, you can like, I guess you can kind of like use the rim as like a as a tool sometimes if you have that tall oh, sidewall yeah. then you can like deflect the ball off of it and then also you just want some heavy duty so when you inevitably crash all the time you're not <laughs> yeah i don't know but... with, yeah totally with bike pole i mean the mallet's always smacking into your front rim uh so you yeah. want it to be pretty dent resistant and if you're if you're the goalie uh yeah you know you totally want as much blocking that ball from going to the going into the net as you possibly can so you have a tall sidewall definitely <laughs> definitely gets used there yeah uh, so i'm totally derailing the discussion here but anyway you're talking <laughs> about your your spoke nipple tray which was a, a yeah. something you designed in cad yeah and then you machined on on the machine and and it has a use for wheel building yeah exactly and that so that's been kind of my first product or first you know one of the beauties of a cnc machine is you can repeat 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 like super super easily and yeah. really accurately and so once you do all the design work it's kind of like well, geez, why wouldn't I make, you know, as many of these as I possibly can? So uh, that's been kind of my first project where I'm trying to, you know, see if I can see if I can offer something for sale, I guess, and see if people will buy it. And several people have, and, you know, thank you to who were early adopters and, and bought that thing. And, you know, I appreciate yeah. it. That's, that's, that's been super fun. So the things that I notice when I see the the Russell makes spoke nipple tray is that it's very pretty. <laughs> uh, you know, you have the anodizing line <clears throat> at velocity, and it's not just that you run that, but you know a lot about anodizing. You've been to anodizing conferences. You can do custom colors yeah. and like mixtures of colors. You're you're very proficient and good at anodizing, and it's it's messy work, and not that many people have. Uh, you know, the, the opportunity to get that good at it, unless they just work at some anodizing facility. Uh, but they're all anodized. They're, they're, they're pretty colors. And then it's, you know, shiny aluminum and the design of it, I think is, is looks good. Uh, what, what I'm curious about is like when it comes to spoke nipple trays, those have existed prior to yours, right? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. But, but, you know, you just kind of, you lay on the spoke nipples and shake it and it orients them so you can pick them up easily. Uh, Yeah, so that's yeah. You just pour them on there, and and the the skinny parts drop down into the slots, and it you know it makes them so they're all heads up, and then you can pick them up from there. So it, that's all the trays really for. And then if you need, did to you guys them, have something like like at the wheel building bench at Velocity? Did you yeah. guys have those? Yeah, we had yeah. pretty much. It's pretty much the same thing. It's pretty similar. I changed the design a little bit to make it easier to uh, machine out of aluminum because I wanted it to be aluminum because. It's cool, but the ones that we had yeah. at uh, at Velocity, and we still have them there, are made out of plastic. And I think they were, I think they were made by Tom, or well, Tom's the the guy who started the factory, uh, one of the owners. Mm-hmm. I think he made those years ago, just on the manual milling machine that was at Velocity. That is actually now in my garage. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think they were made on that machine. So I don't know. It's kind of it. It felt like a good project to get the CNC machine and into Velocity, and then you know a new <clears throat> a new and improved nipple tray. 
but of course it's that was my project i you know i did it all on my own time so it ended up being a russell makes nipple tray (laughs) yeah well and you know when you get proficient with the CAD CAM process and the CNC machine, you can make stuff pretty easily. So, you know, as you have yeah. ideas for tools and, and fixtures and things around velocity that'll help with production, uh, you know, the, the more experienced you are with using that machine and that process, the more quickly you'll be able to bang through some project for something. And there's all sorts of stuff like that all the time. Uh, you know, we're just simple little tool, but okay, it's got to have this geometry here and it's got to have a hole for this with this kind of clearance. And then it'll allow me to do this yada 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 bing bang boom uh can become pretty quick to to make that stuff when you are familiar with the process so it's good to get up to speed you know with projects like this yeah totally what else do i want to talk about uh well uh let's talk about the skim bike you know (laughs) over the years following along with what you've been doing you know you've always had a, a shop going the last, I don't know, five or eight years or something. And you did metal fabrication and different side projects, some automotive things and stuff on your motorcycles and different things. And uh, anyhow, one of the things that one of your coworkers at Velocity and uh, some other folks have been doing the last couple of years is this skim bike competition. And (laughs) to me, it is like one of the more fun and creative things that I've seen uh, in. uh, It's just really cool. So uh, yeah, g- give us like an explanation of what that is and uh, and how you've contributed to it. Yeah, totally. So the the whole idea of a skim bike, I'll tell you where that started. Uh, a couple of my coworkers were at a local mountain biking trail, and they were they were mountain biking on a Saturday or whatever. And uh, there's a the trail kind of goes around a lake, and so at the end of the ride, they went to the lake and they were just kind of putting their feet in the water on the dock, and they're looking out at the boat launch. And they're like, man, if you if you came down that hill right there, that was like the hill that led to the boat launch, and you had skis on your bike, you could totally once you hit the water, you could totally just like skim out across the water, and it'd be cool to see how far you could get, you know. And so that's where the idea came from. And then as we would all build wheels, you know, we all kind of built wheels in a circle. All the wheel building benches are all set up kind of in a circle and so you all you know you can't help but talk to each other all day long <laughs> and so for years we would we would joke around about you know how we were building our skin bikes and uh you know oh my design this year is going to be you know it's going to be so good and basically we were just talking shit for years saying that we were building skin bikes but nobody ever actually did it and nobody ever you know actually showed up on the on the day which was always supposed to be labor day and so you know <laughs> Every at the end of every Labor Day, we'd show up on Monday morning, and you know, oh, you know, where were you at? I was down there, you know, <laughs> but nobody, <laughs> nobody was ever down there. But anyways, one year, I said, I'm, I said, I'm tired of this. I want this thing to happen. So I, I built one. I really built one, and I convinced one other guy, my friend uh, Jeff Jacoby. Uh, I convinced him. You know, I said, dude, I'm seriously building one, and I'm seriously going to be there. And so he built one. And so not this past year, but the year before that, uh, him and I both showed up and we competed against each other and we both did about the same, you know, it's kind of a draw. He says he won, of course, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so we did that. And then, and then the second annual was this past Labor Day and we had, what do we have? I think six people or more. Oh, I can't remember now exactly, but there were a lot of people that showed up and also made skim bikes. So we had like a, we had like a regular old skim bike competition. It was a blast, man. It's that's one of those things in like little groups in cycling like that. That is so cool. Cause it's just people who are just trying to have fun and they're into bikes and like what wacky thing can we do to like <laughs> spice this up a little bit. And so it's yeah. cool. It's cool when you get a group of people together that are all like-minded and like, and just want to goof around for a day. Yeah, no, I, I love that you, so you took like a garage sale bike or something, you know, that yeah. you got real cheap and you, you used some of your sheet metal tools and stuff yeah. and uh, you know, your, your TIG welder, your MIG welder or something and you, a little bit of square tube and you built sort of a, a little, I don't know, 
sled sort of ski that would ride just like two inches above the ground and you'd yeah. be pedaling this bike on the on the boat launch you come at it with 10 miles an hour or something 15 whatever it is and then and then you just lean back when you hit the water and ski as far as you could and so i was watching your instagram stories from afar uh when you were doing that and it was really fun I mean, it's just really exciting, like to see the camaraderie of of that sort of thing happening. Yeah. But then also to see that you having you know no experience with this, and it's not like skim bikes already existed, and you could just look at what other people were doing. Like, <laughs> right? I, someone's probably done it before, but there's not a whole lot of documentation about that. I'm sure. So you're trying to figure it out, and your first try actually seemed to work pretty well. You you actually went like what like 20 feet or so, 30 yeah. feet into the water before you lose enough momentum and you just kind of plummet into the water yeah yeah <laughs> you, you gotta sink. drag the bike out and that's part of the rules once you come to a stop your bike has to sink it can't be a boat <laughs> oh yeah that's so, a good rule yeah you can't make it buoyant it, so so as far as you get is totally dependent on like i mean really it's dependent on your momentum if you can if you mm-hmm. can skim on the water then it's just a matter of i shouldn't be talking about this because you know this is Give away all the yeah, yeah, top secret knowledge, but um, yeah, <laughs> you know, once once you can skim on the water, you just got to go faster so you can get further out there. Yeah, well, and so I, I'm watching on Instagram, and you know, you do your first pass and it works, and then you do another one, and then you just kind of keep getting a little more gusto to it, and then you you really ate shit the one pass. Oh yeah, dude, I broke <laughs> hit the deck I, pretty hard. I broke a rib or two when I did that, but. Yeah, because really? I mean, the the thing was, I thought that the the tires would give me a lot of drag in the water, and so I was like, uh-huh. I want the I want the skis to be as close to the ground as I possibly can, you know. But the approach to the boat launch is all gravel, and of course, gravel is bumpy, and so you're, I'm like coming down this hill as fast as I can, and like kind of trying to make a slight left turn so you can get so you can get lined up with the boat launch. And mm-hmm. as I'm doing that, you know, I just hit a bump and the, everything's kind of, you know, no, the skis are, they're welded to the bike. It's all, it's all steel, but it's like, you know, pretty light. I wanted to make it as lightweight as I can. And so it's pretty <laughs> lightweight stuff and it's all, everything's all bouncing around. And anyways, the front ski just, just bit it into the, <laughs> into the gravel. And it, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's like having your front wheel wash out, but it's like hitting a wall at the same time and i just went completely <laughs> over the bars and just slammed it right just my body slammed into the ground oh man yeah i broke a rib but i got back up and i i did another couple of runs that day that's what you gotta do it's brutal yeah so so this event uh you know you've done two years now and i assume you'll probably keep the tradition alive yeah totally and it's open to the public, so anyone listening who has the inclination to do some really dumb, yeah, uh, <laughs> as that, I, I might need to make a submission one of these years. Yeah, uh, man, make a trip out to Michigan for so it's Labor Day weekend, so a lot of people will have a little bit of extra time that weekend. Anyhow, yeah. it's lovely Michigan weather. You know, late summer in Michigan is excellent. Where where does this take place exactly? So historically, it's taken place at Deep Lake Campground in Middleville, Michigan. And, uh, <laughs> it's just a tiny little campground that's off the beaten path and it's in a really beautiful area. There's a mountain bike trail there. So if you're into bikes, you could, you know, you could go there earlier or watch the event or show up and do the event and then go mountain biking later if you wanted to or whatever. But yeah, it's totally free. You know, it's just people goofing around. If, if you come, if you make a skin bike and you come at noon on Labor Day, <laughs> deep lake campground you can absolutely compete and who knows you might win. Yeah. But it's also, um, yeah, right at your own risk, right? <laughs> oh yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty sketchy. It's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's really cool. I would love to at least come some year, but, uh, you know, I should make some. Yeah. Um, man. <laughs> gotta think about how I can, uh, how I can cheat a little bit. Just enough. Yeah. You know? just, yeah. We got just a little bit of cheating. We got to make a, uh, event page or something there might have been an event page on facebook last year i can't remember um and it probably lays out all the rules and everything 
Yeah, you gotta. Um, I, I've seen you know your Instagram story, and I think in your main Instagram feed you compiled some of it. But um, yeah. if you still have those video clips around, it'd be really cool to put together something that was like more easily searchable on YouTube or something that uh, maybe had like the whole story, or maybe this next year you can you can record a little bit more at the event and stitch it together or something. Or yeah. that's up to you. But, yeah, uh, no, that's totally it, a good idea. I, there's a lot of things like that on Instagram that are sort of ephemeral and they'll be trapped in your mind forever. Like you'll remember this image or something and you want to tell somebody about it. And it's kind of hard to convey always. The... I think I've got, I think I've got it in my, um, in my highlights. So like that oh, okay. whole, that whole story I think is archived in my highlights if you look there, but, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a blast, man. It's just one of those, one of those things well, that you do just for fun. What strikes me as really especially cool about it is that there's so many funny sounding things that, you know, you'll think of with some buddies or something and nobody actually <laughs> does that stuff, right? It's like, yeah. we're all, we're all busy and we have, you know, whatever. Yeah. But, um, I think what really makes that kind of thing special is when you have some stupid idea and you actually do it. Like the follow through <laughs> is something I have a lot of respect for when, when people like, you know, like, wouldn't it be funny if, and it's like, well, it's not that funny to just say it, but it would be yeah. really funny if you actually did it and you guys actually did it. And, um, yeah. I think that's a special thing. I, I really, um, whether it's a stupid idea like that or wh whether it's just, you know, being bold and daring in your life and, you know, your career, whatever it is that you do, there's, there's always such a big difference between talking about stuff and doing stuff. And so I admire that you did that. And, and the same thing with, you know, I was trying to get rid of this machine and you're like, yeah, we'll see if I can take it. And, you know, you did. And we moved that machine ourselves, yeah. uh, which was kind of dumb. That's a 6,500 pound <laughs> machine that we moved on a rented trailer, yeah. like 400 miles, but with, um, like a, with <clears> a sketchy tire and, oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we made it happen. But yeah. anyway, um, appreciate that about your your project. So, uh, so you have these nipple trays. You have a web store. You're you're you know slowly working at developing more stuff and more offerings and working your way through the CNC process. Meanwhile, you're also applying some of these machine capability and skill to uh, manufacturing sort of process refinements at velocity, which I think is really cool. You know, there's there's competing considerations when you make a product for sale something like the nipple tray i think a lot of it is fashion you know it's just like it's yeah. satisfying to have a nice thing like i really love bikes and i like working on bikes and like this is just like a nice piece and i just want it to sit next to my trimming stand so that when i build wheels it's just like a satisfying process it makes me feel good i get to support this person you know there's like I think a lot of that, like it needs to work well, but it also needs to be pretty. Yeah. And when you're making tools for like a spoke drilling machine in a factory, it doesn't need to be pretty at all. And, um, and so it's, it's kind of an interesting challenge. It's kind of fun to shift gears and to operate a little bit in both spaces because I love making pretty stuff. And I also love when you don't need to worry about that, you know, they're, they're yeah. kind of fun. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, both have their place. Um, it's kind of fun. I, I kind of like making stuff that's not pretty, <laughs> because it frees you from that like you can you can just focus on you know the, the complete functionality of the thing but even when i even when you do that you know sometimes you can't help but especially with the cnc stuff like like you mentioned this drill plate again the uprights on it which you know i don't know we're not gonna be able to show pictures or whatever but the there's a feature of it that's like a little pedestal and and there's six of them. And as I was modeling these pedestals, I was like, okay, well, it needs to be this dimension. And so I'm like drawing rectangles and stuff. And then I'm like trimming corners off. Cause I was like, well, there really doesn't need to be any material here, you know, but there could be, but I'm just like, I'm just like knocking it off. Cause I'm, I'm modeling it and it's easy enough to do. And well, I guess I can make it look a little bit better and, you know, oh, I might as well, I might as well put a little fillet on this corner. No, oh, yeah, I guess that looks kind of better. And so when you're, when you don't really like, when you're not the one like filing the corner off, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's easy to, it's easy to just try and make everything pretty. I don't know. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, you know, if you're in there with an Allen wrench adjusting it, some of that stuff can be a knuckle buster. So yeah, totally. A bunch of square corners and yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to see what you do with that machine in in the future, because um, it has a huge amount of 
capability. You know, I, I, even in the time that I had it, I used it a lot, but, um, you know, with fixturing, you can get so much more out of it than what I even did. Uh, you know, if you had, if you had lots of dense fixturing, you could let it run for a longer period of time at once. And yeah, yeah. there's a lot, a lot of cool stuff. I think that the tool changer has 22 pockets and I don't think I ever ran a program that used more than like 10 or 12 tools. You know, there's, yeah. just, there's a lot that can be done with that. Yeah. The way I've been using the tool changer is I just have, I have tools. I've been loading it with tools and I haven't really had to take many out other than a few like small occasions where it's just a tool that I have never even used. And I'm like, why did I even put that in there? But you know, I just load it up and I have like a bunch of end mills for aluminum that I know what pockets they're in. And so when I write programs, I, I just know that, you know, tool number nine is the, is the half inch carbide three flute end mill that I use for aluminum. And, um, that's just, it's always the same. And I, I don't know. I like that work, that workflow. It's, yeah. Um, really intuitive to me. Yeah. That's I what I do with my new machine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's been um, super fun learning how to use that thing. And, and, uh, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've barely, I've barely, you know, cracked into the surface of it. I just, I'm, I'm barely able to, at least this is how I feel. I'm barely able to like kind of reliably make something, hopefully the first try that, um, that is pretty much how I wanted it to be, <laughs> you know, maybe it needs a little adjustment here or there, but, um, yeah, yeah, it's been fun, uh, learning all that. Yeah. So another project that you've done over the years that I think is pretty cool, uh, not super related to fabrication or, or, um, frame building, but is, uh, your, your wheelie, uh, wheelie wanderer <laughs> project. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you had ridden BMX and some other stuff when you were younger. And as an adult, a couple of years ago, you figured out you could wheelie and it wasn't terribly hard and you got pretty good at it. Yeah. And, uh, and so you made this, what, like an Instagram account and where you just wheelie down really steep and big Hills and you record <laughs> it with your GoPro Yeah. and you made a GoPro mount. You fabricated a GoPro mount for your helmet too, I think. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But you're like going down like the steepest hill in Pittsburgh and like, tell us about that project some. <laughs> oh yeah, man. Um, that's another one of those ideas where, you know, yeah, like you said, I kind of, you know, I grew up riding BMX and I learned how to ride manuals, which is just like coasting wheelies. Basically you lean back a little and, and you just ride on the rear wheel as long as you can. You adjust your balance by bending your knees and kind of like shifting your body weight forward and back so i knew how to do that already but i never really learned how to wheelie like pedal like sit up on the on a seat of like a mountain bike or whatever and just pull up a wheelie and just pedal and just go for like you know because there's people who it seems like they can go forever you know so i was like i want to learn how to do that so i just started i just started trying it basically and um you know, every day I, <laughs> it's one of those ridiculous things that you do for whatever reason, but, um, anyways, it was fun and I did it. Um, and so I just got better and better and better and better. And then eventually, you know, I, I thought, geez, I, you know, it's kind of fun to like wheelie down a hill cause you, you can coast, you don't have to pedal, you can coast cause you're going down a hill and you just, you just ride the brake just as gently as you possibly can. And so you're kind of using the brake to find your balance point. It's like, oh man, well going down hills is super fun, except now when I go down a big hill, um, uh, you know, my brake, when I get toward the bottom and I had disc brakes, I had pretty good disc brakes, but when I get toward the bottom, the brake was feeling like super squishy and cause it just got really hot, you know? And, uh, so I went and got like I got the baddest ass brake that I could find. Uh, um, uh, what is it? It's a Hope. It's like a Hope 203 millimeter rotor vent, vented rotor downhill um, mountain biking brake. It's a badass brake, and I put it on the rear end of my old Karate Monkey, and that's what I do wheelies on normally. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I. And I just started sending it down steeper and steeper hills. And the whole time I've been, you know, making videos and posting videos of like all these hills that I am wheeling down. And um, then I went out to, um, I, I exhausted pretty much every hill in Grand Rapids, which is the city I live in. And um, uh, went 
a few other places in Michigan, like surrounding cities. And then maybe if I was on vacation, I'd bring my bike. And if I found something cool to wheelie, I'd <laughs> wheelie that and record it. Like I did Niagara Falls when I came out and visited you. Um, nice. Yeah. Anyways. Um, you didn't go over the falls. <laughs> no, no, I just like, yeah, like around, <laughs> around where you walk. But anyways, um, yeah, I just kept doing it. And then eventually I went and visited a friend of mine in Portland, Oregon, and uh, wheelied a bunch of hills out there. And, those, you know, it's more mountainous out there. So there's some pretty, <laughs> pretty big hills, bigger hills than I had ever done. But I still did them. You know, I still did them like first try. And, you know, growing up riding BMX, you kind of expect to crash at some point. Like if you keep, if you keep pushing it, eventually you're going to, you're going to crash. It's got to happen. But it never happened. Like I I didn't crash. It's because that, that brake was so good. And I just got good at like when, if you got a, if you're doing a wheelie and you got a brake that at any, at any point, if you just give it a good squeeze, it'll get your front wheel down. You're going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, once you develop that sort of reflex. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. Um, I guess yeah, as long as you know like how how far is too far when you can't do that anymore. But anyways, um I'm going on a tangent about the break, but the you know, I just kept going down steeper and steeper hills and then finally, you know, I got back from Portland and uh, I was like, well, you know, where, where can I go that has even steeper hills than that? I've heard that Pittsburgh has some pretty steep hills. And so I went there and I did a whole, a whole season of videos. There was like eight or nine videos of, of Pittsburgh hills. And the last video in that series, which is the last one that I've done, because I don't even know what to do from here. But it was that when I got to the hill, I got, I walked over to the top and there was a sign that said, this is the steepest street in the continental United States. <laughs> and, and I look down and it's all like paved with brick and the brick is like trying to like fall out of the road because it's that steep and they're all like you know they're all like tapped forward and so all the it's not it's not like a flat brick brick road all the bricks are like pointed up so if I were to fall I'm falling on like like a serrated uh oh my god <laughs> serrated like yeah, and- brick road and you're not just going to fall and hit the ground. You're, it's like you'd be like basically tumbling down the stairs. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I I did wheelie that hill. I mean, I, I didn't wheelie. So I wheelied the whole brick portion, and then it turns to concrete. And then there's a street, like right at the bottom of the hill. There's a, there's a cross street, and it's a dead-end road. Yeah. And so I wheelied down the whole brick portion and then set the front wheel down and got on the brakes as hard as I could and skidded across the whole street and almost hit a truck that was like parked in the, in the <laughs> part in the driveway, like across the street. So, you know, I, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I wheelied the whole thing, but also I didn't wheelie the whole thing. But if I would have wheelied anymore, I would have like crashed into a house. So I wheelied yeah. as far as I could. That's so cool. I'm such a, um, I have such a soft spot for like stupid tricks and like, um, <laughs> like, like, like party tricks and smoke and mirrors, like, uh, yeah. you know, the, the kind of stuff that it's, it's so dumb, but I just love it. Like, uh, you know, I can kind of, you know, track stand a fixie, which is like not that cool, but I can do that sort of. And I can, <laughs> yeah. uh, there's just like a couple little things that I can do on a bike. I'm just not, I'm not that good at doing like tricks and stuff or yeah. like I can do this stupid thing where I can open a beer can by just driving my thumb straight through the sidewall of the can. And that <laughs> makes me feel really cool. And th- that sort of stuff, like yeah. actual, actual skill to be able to, to go down a hill like that, I think is, it's like on your deathbed. Does it matter that much? Did it really contribute that much to society? I don't know. Maybe no. I won't regret not being able to manual, although you're really good at it. So like, I think that's a little bit different, but um, yeah, there's something cool about, about this. Like it's just, you know, it's just fun to live a little bit. Yep. Totally. You got to get the blood pumping once in a while. That's what I say. Yeah. <laughs> and for anyone who hasn't seen those, what the, the Instagram account is like wheelie wanderer. Yeah. Right? Wheelie wanderer. Uh, I haven't actually uploaded a video in a long time ever since I did that Pittsburgh Hill. Cause you know, I don't know. It was fun to do like steeper and steeper Hills, but now I got to travel 
super far yeah. to find a steeper one. And, and I don't know, that was apparently the steepest one in the U S. So I got to go to like Hawaii or Alaska, or I got to go out of to China someplace I, like, I don't know, man. Yeah. <laughs> Plus like you up the ante even more, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I'm like, glad you didn't wreck yourself on that one. In Pittsburgh. I know. It's well, crazy. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I just Isn't that figured... like the, uh, <clears throat> the dirty dozen or something. There's like a, there's like a, yeah. a, a cycling event that happens in Pittsburgh that involves climbing like the steepest Hills in the city. And it's totally bonkers. And I have friends who will do that. So I'll see their sort of like, you know, Instagram stories and stuff when they go to do that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm familiar. Th- those streets are incredibly steep. Yeah. Yeah. And those are the, yeah, those are the streets that I did. I modeled it. I wanted to do all of the streets in the race, but I was only there for one day and I did, nine of them so that was as much as i could fit in and it was dude i mean i did <laughs> that's a lot it was a lot and i did it all in one day and i you know i was on my bike i was riding my bike around town i was kind of driving too i'd kind of drive to the hill but then i'd have to ride up the hill and then wheelie down it um that's crazy and on know, a single speed on a, yeah on a single speed mountain bike with bmx bars on it basically and uh you know, I didn't always make it, or I didn't always make the whole hill first try. Sometimes I had to try, you know, three or four times at a hill to get it, to get down the whole thing. And, uh, you know, that means I had to climb it that many times. And so, God, that was a, that was a hard <laughs> day, man. I climbed those hills a lot. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, uh, uh, what's, what's next for, for Russell makes, do you have anything that you want to share about, um, what's next? Yeah, man, I don't know. Uh, just yesterday we were talking, uh, you and I were talking about, um, me, the idea of me doing a, a wheel building, uh, video series to kind of teach you how to build wheels. And I'm kind of getting excited about that. I might do that. Um, yeah, you have a ton of experience building wheels and I think you have good video production skills and, um, I I think you're, I don't know if I've seen you explain that many things. I think you would be very good at that. Yeah. Um, I've taught a couple people how to build wheels kind of casually in, in velocity, um, uh, or at least giving them tips here and there, you know, and, uh, you know, when, once, when I'm really familiar with something like I am with wheel building, I can teach it pretty well. If I feel like I know it inside and out, um, you know, I, I feel like I can be a pretty good teacher. I, I can explain things pretty well. So, um, you know, and I know, I know wheel building really well and I've got access to, you know, all kinds of, you know, it's easy for me working at velocity to be able to build a wheel with, bladed spokes and show what that's about or build a wheel with double butted spokes and show, you know, what that's about and why that's better or what the advantages are and all that. So I can dive into all that. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, if that's something that anybody would be interested in, I mean, I'm probably going to do it, (laughs) but if that's, you know, if somebody listening is like, dude, that I would totally, uh, take a, a wheel building course online, uh, you know, find me on Instagram uh, Russell makes on Instagram, um, and, uh, hit me a D shoot me a DM or whatever and, and let me know. Uh, yeah. maybe, maybe that'll you know, help push me forward, but yeah, it's something I think I want to do and, and uh, all I got to do is do it. I've got the equipment, so. Yeah. Nothing to it, but to do it. <laughs> you know, when I started making YouTube videos about frame building, my motivation was to provide content for people who are interested in the market that I serve that helps me promotionally. It's also something that, you know, I've loved frame building for like a decade and, uh, and I have a little bit of experience. I'm really not nearly as experienced as most of the people who are guests on this show. Uh, you know, I built a 19 or so bicycles somewhere in there and I've done them a certain way. I'm really not an expert about frame building and I don't have a lot of authority, but since YouTube is free, you know, I can just make some videos, throw them up there. If people want to watch them, they can watch them. If they don't, you know, they get to see the way that one one relative amateur gets it done in their shop. And um, so there's some value there, but like, I just don't have that level of expertise that, you know, like someone like Brad Bingham or, or, you know, anyone who's built lots and lots of bikes. Carl Strong did a couple YouTube videos. They weren't in depth, but he showed sort of his process. And I've watched those videos like a hundred (laughs) times to try and glean every last little tip out of those. Uh, You know, that's, it's really a useful resource. And so, 
I compare what I did with frame building. I was just, I was just making content to show a way to do it. It might be a useful starting point for some people or a useful point of reference for someone who's done it a lot their way to see a different way. But for you, if you were making content about wheel building, you built a ton of wheels yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, quite a bit of different styles. I mean, most of them have been velocity rims, I suppose, but like yeah. you've done quite a bit of wheel building and uh, you know, you really, you're, you're quick at it, you know, what to lose sleep over and what not to lose sleep over. There's a big difference there. You know, all my favorite YouTubers are not just amateurs who are having fun. Most of them are people who are really good at what they do. And so uh, I appreciate the expertise that goes into, uh, you know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I have built a lot of wheels. I put a lot of, you know, I'm pretty detail oriented person and, you know, doing one thing for that long, you, you figure out a lot of, little tips and tricks and so it'd be cool to be able to share that and uh hopefully people get some use out of that information yeah yeah i think one of the biggest things that comes with experience is like learning what not to lose sleep over i guess right because like i think when you're new to something somebody says like oh you know like for instance like welding they're like cleaning 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 you really need to clean and you do but also like, or like, you know, prepping and all that stuff. And then the other thing is like the other side of that coin is that when you're really good at something, you know how to do that efficiently and you know where the line is where like, you know, if you don't get it this clean, it's really not going to work. And if you get it cleaner than this and you keep cleaning, then you're just wasting your time. And like, that's the stuff where like, when you don't know, and I'm sure it's like that with wheel building where like you want to get the the tensions balanced or you want to, um, you want to, all these little things that, that come into not just doing it, but like doing it really well. And yeah, yeah I'd love to take that class or, or watch the video series or however it is presented. Yeah. Cool, man. Anyhow. Uh, well, that's most of the questions and most of the, the point of the interview. So thanks for taking the time to be on the show. Can't see, can't wait to see what you do next. Yeah, man. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been fun chatting. Yeah. Cool. Talk soon. Yeah, Bye. man. Yeah.